poodle skirts, sock hops, drag races, and a movie that's really tough to watch with a 2018 lens. That's right, folks. We're talking about Greece right here on the first ever episode of the Movie Musical Shakedown. Let's get it going. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention for This is it! Five, six, seven, eight. You've got talent. Let's see what we can do with it. You're gonna make me believe that you belong on that stage. Dancing on that show for my dream. Oh, yeah. Let's be honest, folks. Is this the most badass opening number to a movie musical of all time? I think so. I mean, find me a better one. Seriously. Folks, we're talking about Grease today. This is the movie musical Shakedown. And I, of course, am your host, Mr. Chris Peterson. And I am so thrilled to be doing this episode uh, with you today. First ever. Movie Musical Shakedown. That's right, folks. And this is going to be a brand new podcast that we are going to be doing on the Onstage Blog Network right here at onstageblog.com. And as I mentioned last month and the month before, and you know we've tried to do this a couple times, but now I'm really committed to it. Um, we want to get this podcasting network off the ground. And the idea is... I want to bring together a dozen or so podcasts, creating some of them, presenting some of them to you, um, that all have to talk about theater, that go beyond theater, but just interesting to theatrical artists and designers and directors and writers. I mean, that's really the point. Um, Nothing like this really exists. We have a lot of theatrical-based podcasts out there, but they're kind of all out there in the wind, and you can't really go someplace that has um, a singular voice. Um, And that's what you're going to kind of get from the Onstage Blog Network. And Movie Musical Shakedown is going to be one of those. And I'm very excited about doing this podcast because, first of all, I think for me, doing a podcast, I need to have like focused material, like weekly material that I can talk about at great length, um, and not have to worry about writer's block and things like that. Uh, and when you're doing a, a one week or excuse me, a once a week podcast, um, about movie musicals, my gosh, the, the possibilities are endless. There are hundreds of movie musicals out there. There are 52 weeks in a year. I am not going to be doing 52 episodes per year, but needless to say, I could be doing this for a long time. So I'm excited about that prospect. So we're going to be talking about, Movie musicals, the good, the bad, the in-between. We're going to be breaking it down, giving some really honest opinions about what we feel about these movie musicals. Because let's be honest, 
yes, national tours, going to see a, a live theatrical production is fantastic and certainly can influence plenty of generation of performers and artists and things like that. But nothing does it better or on a wider spectrum than a movie musical. Um, I will be the first to say that the Disney renaissance of the late 80s, early 90s was a huge um, influence on me to get involved in theater, as I'm sure the movie musicals of the early 80s and late 70s, and then the golden age of Rodgers and Hammerstein productions and things like that influenced a number of people. So there's nothing that does that on a wider level than movies. So that's what we're going to be paying tribute here um, on this podcast. And even though this first episode is me by myself doing this, I've got a couple of promises for you. First of all, this will be the last episode um, that you will listen to where it's me by myself. I kind of started reaching out to friends of mine, uh, colleagues of mine, people that I respect who I feel would be able to give some amazing insight and opinions into movie musicals when we break these things down from a singing standpoint, from a choreography standpoint, from a a filmmaking standpoint. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited. So I've got a rotating kind of list of people that I'm going to be bringing on to this show to also talk about movie musicals. So I'm very, very excited about that. So even though today's episode is me by myself, I promise you this is going to be probably the last one. Um, Secondly, the next promise I have for you is this is the last podcast that is going to sound like this. The reason being is that I have purchased um, a wonderful new piece of equipment. For those podcasters out there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's called the Blue Yeti microphone. It's kind of the standard uh, industry piece of equipment that's used for home podcasting uh, for people that don't get to go inside a fully professional recording studio and things like that. Um, It is pretty much the best microphone on the market. Uh, for podcasting. So I am excited. My Blue Yeti microphone is supposed to arrive in the mail tomorrow. So needless to say, the next time we do this podcast, it will be a much better sounding microphone uh, than the one on my headset here. Um, So there you go. So this will be the last one that sounds like this, I promise you. But I'm excited. I'm I'm really excited about the prospect of this, this, uh, this podcast. And then what better way to kick things off than to talk about one of the most popular movie musicals of all time, and that, of course, is Grease, based on the stage musical Grease. Um, and it is one of the most popular, it's confirmed, it's one of the most popular movie musicals of all time, and there's actually statistics to back that up, which I'm going to be sharing with you uh, in, in just a little bit. But, um, like I said, you know, this is a highly influential piece of of pop culture. I mean, Summer Nights. I I can tell you that at every single school dance, from middle school to senior year of high school, Summer Nights was played at least at one one point during the school year. So whether it was the homecoming dance, the semi-formal, or the prom, it was played somewhere (laughs) along that line. Um, And of course, like we all kind of sang in in our sections and things like that. Um, I can tell you that um, I've seen this movie probably at least once a year 
almost every year since high school. I mean, it's just, it's one of those movies where if it's on TV, chances are, I don't care what point of the movie it's at, I'm most likely going to stop switching channels and I'm just going to focus in and I'm locked in for at least the next hour on this thing. And is it a good movie? That's debatable. I think it's a middle-of-the-road film. I think there's some good things about it. There's some bad things about it. There's also some really terrible things about it um, that you couldn't certainly put in a movie in 2018. But um, I don't think it's a terrible movie. But I think if someone said this is my guilty pleasure film, I wouldn't begrudge them for that. I think it is definitely one of those films that could certainly qualify as guilty pleasure. Uh, but let's talk about some of the factoids about this movie. Um, First of all, I don't think I have to really go into in-depth about the plot. I mean, we all kind of know the plot. It's about basically a group of teenagers entering their senior year of high school at Rydell High during the 1958 into 59 uh, year. Um, and that has been confirmed, by the way. I'm not just making that up. Um, <laughs> uh, it takes Rydell High School, of course, f uh, a fictional high school but loosely based on Venice, California. So that was something interesting I found out about this show. Um, and basically it's about these two characters, Sandy uh, and Danny, who have this magical summer together. Um, and then Danny thinks that, you know, sh you know she's gone. She's, she's never coming back uh, after the summer. And yet, because of change of plans, which is never, by the way, explained further, um... Sandy enters and transfers into Danny's high school, not knowing that he is like the popular greaser uh, leader of the T-Birds um, and whatnot. And then they kind of have this awkward meeting where Danny obviously is head over heels for Sandy and yet has to also be cool in front of his friends. Uh, I think he says at one point, like, you know, just rock in and roll in, which is probably the dumbest piece of writing I've ever heard in a movie, but Travolta sells it pretty well. Um, <laughs> and uh and yeah and that's kind of the and then there's a back and forth of like trying to win sandy back and there's a dance contest and then there's you know the, you know subplots with rizzo and kanicki and this you know panic about teenage pregnancy and th it's it's a whole interesting uh high school you know melodrama slash comedy type of thing with really salty language that you probably couldn't use uh, in a movie musical today, uh, especially not one that was rated PG at the time, by the way. This is 1978 standards, but PG. Um, but yeah, so that's basically it. And it's obviously about cars uh, too. But um, the cast, let's talk about the cast real quick uh, because you you had a really, really strong um, cast for 1978. I mean, you've got John Travolta starring as Danny. And this is literally the year after Saturday Night Fever has launched him into the Hollywood stratosphere. So John Travolta is like on top of the world right now. And you could argue that between 1976 and 1980, John Travolta is the biggest thing in the world. Uh, 76, he does Carrie. 77, he does Saturday Night Fever with the boy in the plastic bubble in between. Uh, then he does Grease. And then he follows up Grease with this really interesting um, movie, which if you haven't seen it, you you it's it's something that has to be seen, seen to be believed. Uh, he does a movie called Moment by Moment, where he plays a romantic pairing, coupling with uh, Lily Tomlin of all people. So that was pretty interesting. Um, and then he does Urban Cowboy in 1980, uh, and all the while, he's still on TV doing Wealth in the Back Cotter. So. Um, 
you could you could definitely make the case that this you know Greece, uh, seventy eight. This is this is Travolta's peak of his powers as a as a movie star, and he definitely used those powers um, in the movie to get some things that he wanted. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, yeah, this is him and his height. And then you've got Olivia Newton John, who's kind of this up and coming Australian country singer um, who's starting to have some hits on the charts. Uh, but had never, you know, I think she had one film credit before she did Grease. Um, but obviously this movie launched her as well. And it's really arguably what she's best known for. I mean, let's be honest, no offense. I, I like Let's Get Physical just as much as the next person. I love Xanadu. And of course, we're going to do Xanadu on this podcast later on down the road. Um, but, you know, it's Grease. That's what she's known for. So you've got her, but she's phenomenal in this movie, I think, um, gorgeous, obviously, uh, and obviously, I think, she, well, well, we'll talk about the singing quality later on, but, I mean, she really does carry the movie, um, and then you've got a pretty strong supporting cast, I mean, really, if, if you take out Travolta and Olivia Newton-John out of the equation, you know, if, if, if it wasn't for those two, yeah, obviously, the, that, you know, is a huge factor in this movie's success, but exceptionally strong Supporting cast. I mean, you've got Stockard Channing before she really became who we know as Stockard Channing, the accomplished film and stage actress. Jeff Conway, you know, right before Taxi. Uh, you've got Michael Tucci, you know, Kelly Ward, Dee Dee Kahn playing Frenchie, Jamie Donnelly playing Jan, a, a character that is not portrayed positively um, in that movie because she's just doing some really weird things and she's always eating and stuff like that. So not, not great through a 2018 lens, but, um, interestingly, the thing about Jamie Donnelly, she didn't necessarily have a Hollywood, uh, strong Hollywood career after Greece, but she did go on to become a very well-known acting teacher. So that's kind of cool, cool trivia note there. But then you've got these, this trio of like old Hollywood, I don't want to call them legends, but definitely A-list stars. I mean, you've got Sid Caesar, the comedy legend, uh, playing Coach Calhoun. You've got Eve Arden, uh, Academy Award nominee Eve Arden, like A-list star of the 40s and 50s uh, as Principal McGee. And then playing Vi, her secretary, is Joan Blondell, who is another 1940s, like 50s, like blonde starlet of Hollywood and you've got them in in Greece which I just think is such a cool get to have uh, in your movie and then of course you've got Frankie Avalon playing the Teen Angel cool trivia notes about that uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later and then Shana Nah I mean the, the cast goes on and on so um, exceptionally strong supporting cast uh, of this movie some factoids that you should definitely know this movie came out June 16th 1978 three years and three days before I was born. I was born June 19th, 1981. So there you go. Um, that doesn't really matter into the equation at all. I just thought you'd like to know that. Uh, <laughs> it was made on a $6 million budget. And that is important to know, folks. You need to remember that number. It was made on a $6 million budget because when it was released, uh, it had immediate box office success. This was not a fluke. This was not a flop and then becoming a cult hit. This was a hit from day one. It, the, from opening day, it grossed $8.9 million. And if you think about uh, inflation, uh, that's about, you know, 
three times that, that, you know, basically what that would be in today's standards. Um, and it, it actually, you know, when it opened, it actually opened as the number two film that weekend to Jaws 2, but it ended up outgrossing Jaws 2, obviously. And in the first 19 days of its release, it grossed $40.2 million. Keep in mind, remember again, $6 million budget. Now, it's gone on to be gross $188.7 million domestically and $206.2 million internationally, totaling $394.9 million. Again, $6 million budget. Um, it is the second highest grossing movie musical of all time, right behind the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast, which has grown on to gross like it was like 1.2 billion dollars it's something ridiculous but it's incredible that you know you've got beauty and the beast number one and then greece is number two and for a long time greece was actually the third highest grossing domestic film of all time i mean it's it's kind of preposterous to think about it like that but it's true so when i say that greece is one of the most popular movie musicals of all time i'm i I'm not lying to you. It absolutely is um, because of, of of how it was grossed, and it was it definitely received uh, positive reviews from the critics when it came out. I mean, critics called it terrific fun. Um, there you go. And and actually, in 2004, Greece was voted the best musical ever uh, by Channel Four uh, on their 100 greatest musicals of all time. Um, and it holds an actually 75% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So again, not only is it, you know, one of the most popular movie musicals of all time, it's considered one of the actual better movie musicals of all time. So like I said, when we're kicking things off strong here, um, I mean it, we are kicking things off strong, uh, on this podcast by talking about Greece. So let's get into the categories. Let's get into the different subject areas that we're going to be talking about on this podcast. Now, with every movie musical, we're going to break it down into certain different um, categories and talk about different things. We're going to be doing a section and category called Production Hell. And I mean, you know, a question mark there um, with some juicy tidbits about the the making of if there was any backstage drama or difficulties uh, bringing this to the screen. We're also going to be talking about casting close calls by uh, we all know that when it comes to uh, casting these these movies, a lot of people are considered a lot of people auditions and a lot of people nearly are cast in many of these roles and a lot of people that you may know and also some that might surprise you. So we're going to talk about some of those um, as well. Also, with any movie musical, we have to talk about the, the singing, the dancing, the acting and the design. Those are the big four main components uh, to make, I think, a successful movie musical. So with each category, we're going to kind of go down the line and rank uh, the movie one to ten on each category: singing, acting, dancing, um, and uh, design. And then a couple other um, categories we're going to do: numbers we needed, numbers we could do without. Obviously, you know these cannot be three and a half hour films uh, and include every single song uh, in the score. Although some of them do. Um, so we're going to talk about numbers that we needed that were cut that should have been in the films uh, that probably would have made the film stronger or at least better, or, you know, more complete. Um, and we're also going to be talking about numbers that we probably could have done without. Um, sometimes 
new music is written for these movies. Sometimes the wrong song is included when another should have been included. Um, so we'll talk about that too. Um, of course, we're you know with a lot of these, we're going to be talking about what's timeless and what's dated. Um, and and with Greece, it's going to be pretty interesting conversation on that one. Uh, of course, we have to give out some awards uh, with these things like who gets the Barbara Award, which is for the best singer. Um, of course, named after Barbara Streisand, who has, I believe, one of the best voices ever recorded. Um, so that will be what the, the Barbara Award is about, the best singer in the movie. Also, who's going to get the Russell Crowe Award for the worst singer? Yes. Where there is good, there also has to be bad. And that will be the Russell Crowe Award, named after the esteemed actor, Academy Award-winning actor, Russell Crowe. Um, pretty much first performance of Les Mis. And uh, another movie that will eventually get to on this podcast as well. Uh, and, and then the final award we're going to give out is what's called the Bumlet Award. Now, for those of you who don't know what the Bumlet Award is all about, because this is the first time I'm probably mentioning it, or who Bumlet is, uh, Bumlet is a character from Newsies, the movie, the original movie, played by a, a young actor named Dominic Lucero, um, who sadly passed away. Um, but the, the reason I'm naming this award called the Bumlet Award, really in honor of Dominic, is it's for the ensemble member or extra or small cast member or whatnot that practically, like, steals the movie. Um, like, in you know, when if they're dancing in the background and they are just pulling your focus because they're an incredible dancer or they're an extra or um, a, a supporting cast member that is just so perfectly fit for their role that... You know, you couldn't imagine anybody else playing it, things like that. And and for those of you who don't know who Bumlet is in Newsies, if you watched the King of the New York, King of New York number, he's the guy that's like spinning on the fan at the end of that, that number. And when you look at him in that number and then you watch the rest of the movie, it's very clear that he's actually probably the best dancer uh, in the entire movie. And he just pulls your focus for the rest of the film. So that's why I'm calling it the Bumlet Award for the really the ensemble, extra, small cast member. That just absolutely crushes it. And then the final thing we're going to talk about on the past podcast um, is, does this get a remake? And um, some of these musicals already have been remade. Some of them haven't. And for those of ones that have, we might even talk about the remake a little bit uh, as well. But let's start talking about production hell with Grease. Um, not too much drama backstage according to my research. So there wasn't a lot of difficulties getting this to screen because it was a fairly successful um, stage production. There was a lot of interest from Hollywood. And plus there, there were, were a lot of young um, stars already, you know, working in the show and things like that. So it was a pretty easy pathway to get this thing to the silver screen. Um, but just some cool tidbits and, and you could call it production hell, I guess, if you wanted to. Uh, for instance, the Dan dance contest uh, was filmed during the summer when, um, the school that they were filming it in uh, was closed. So they actually were filming it in an actual high school gymnasium. That was not a, a film set. Uh, and the gym had no air conditioning. So the doors had to be kept shut to control lighting. So the building became stifling hot. Um, extras and cast members said it was easily above um, 100 degrees. Of, and imagine being in that type of climate, dancing, to then, you know, when you're not, between takes and still not getting any relief whatsoever um, for, for 10 hours a, a day. Uh, and on more, one, more than one occasion, um, extras had to be taken out on stretchers due to heat-related illnesses. So not only were they dropping from the dancing, but also just from filming the actual movie itself. Um, here's some cool things. Grease Lightning. 
for instance. The movie, the, the number Grease Lightning, the, the iconic song, which, by the way, you, again, have to totally change the lyrics to nowadays, um, was supposed to be sung by Jeff Conway's character, Kanicki, as it is done in the stage version. However, John Travolta used his clout, again, remember, the clout coming from Welcome Back, Connor, and Saturday Night Fever, uh, to have his character, Danny Zuko, sing it instead, and the director felt... Obviously, it was only right to ask Conway first if this was okay. Uh, and interestingly enough, at first, Conway said, no, hey, man, that's my song. That's the only song that Kanicki actually gets to sing. Um, and not for nothing, but we never actually hear Jeff Conway sing uh, really in the movie, except for little bits and pieces in the background um, during Grease Lightning. And that was his kind of one moment, as it is, of course, in the actual musical itself. Uh, but then he eventually gave in and let Travolta have... Um, the number. However, it was later pointed out that it doesn't make much sense for Danny to be singing Grease Lightning at all, which is all about the T-Birds, you know, obviously cruising for, for girls and trying to, you know, hook up with many as possible. And, and Danny's not supposed to be interested in that at all at that point in the movie. He's pretty much obsessed with Sandy at that point. So it makes much more sense for Kanicki to be singing that number, since he doesn't seem to be at all caring about monogamous relationships, as Danny is with Sandy. So Kanicki is, in fact, the character who obviously sang this in the original Broadway show uh, before Travolta used his star power um, to, to get it instead. But once again, if you really think of the context of the movie itself, it really makes no sense for Travolta to be singing that number um, at all. And then finally, another kind of cool production um, note here that definitely should probably mention is that um, Rizzo's hickeys during that scene where she's kind of trying to put makeup on her hickeys were actually real. Stockard Channing said in an interview that Jeff Conway insisted on applying him, applying them himself because we all know that a, a hickey from Kaneki is like a Hallmark card. Um, duh, no, obviously you can't do that today. Can't do that today. Um, and no, 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 no. Anyway, um, so that's some, just some production hell notes. As we go further on this podcast, obviously there will be much more juicy drama and stories and difficulties, lawsuits, things like that about a lot of these movie musicals. I can already think of a couple off the top of my head, so I can't wait to get to those down the road. But that's really it for Greece, to be quite honest with you. Um, some casting close calls. Obviously there are a lot of people uh, considered for these roles. For instance, Henry Winkler, the Fonz. Uh, from Happy Days, was considered for the role of Danny Zuko, but he turned it down out of fear of being typecast. And you know what? To be honest, I can't blame him because who wants to play a character like the Fonz on, on TV and then play a character like the Fonz on, on film? I, I totally understand it. Um, other people that were considered for the role of Sandy had a long list of people. For instance, the part was originally meant for Susan Day of the Partridge Family. Yeah, the oldest daughter from the Partridge Family. She was the original person that this role was actually written for. However, Susan Day's manager talked Susan Day out of it by telling her that this was not the right project for her. Um, and, you know, obviously history tells us, can you name a movie that Susan Day was in? I sure as heck can't. Um, so I hope that she fired that manager um, afterwards because that was just terrible Terrible, terrible advice. At the time, too. I mean, my gosh, you're about to, you know, you're going to start a movie with John Travolta, um, and that's bad for your career? Please, come on. That was terrible advice, even for 1978 standards. Um, other people considered for this role. Carrie Fisher 
was considered for the role of Sandy. So was Marie Osmond, who also turned down the role out of fear that it might hurt her image, especially at the end when Sandy turns into a quote-unquote bad girl, um, so to speak. Here's an interesting note. Lucy Arnaz was considered for the role of Rizzo. She was actually the first choice for Rizzo. However, and this is kind of like an urban myth, there's no um, confirmation on this from Lucy herself, but um, she allegedly was dropped from consideration because her mother, Lucille Ball, the incredible, iconic comedic actress, actually called Paramount and said that, you know, her daughter is not going to do a screen test because Lucille Ball used to own the studio, which was technically not true. I mean, she, Lucille Ball actually owned a subsidiary of Paramount, but did not own Paramount. But yet, Lucille Ball tried to use her clout, saying that no daughter of mine does a screen test. Producers weren't having that, so Lucy Arnaz was dropped from the film, and the rest is history. Um, so there you go. Um, other kind of interesting casting notes here. Uh, the part of the coach, Coach Calhoun, was originally cast with um, adult film star Harry Reams who starred in such films such as the iconic adult film Deep Throat. So um, he was all set to go playing Coach Calhoun until the producers and directors felt that his adult film career probably would have overshadowed um, a lot of other things, and also the fact that you probably don't want an adult film star uh, in a movie about high school um, at the time. So um, that was an interesting note to find out, too. Also, finally... Maybe the biggest uh, was that um, the role of the guardian angel for Beauty School Dropout was offered to Elvis Presley. He was the first choice for that role. However, Elvis turns the offer down, and interestingly enough, within a year, he would actually be dead. Um, so can you imagine him actually filming that scene as the Beauty School Dropout guardian angel and having the movie released after his death in 1978, that would have put a completely different spin on the movie, and we probably would have remembered Grease for a lot of different reasons than we do now. And also, you know, on a positive note, who knows? Maybe if Elvis Presley had taken that role, he might have still been alive today. But um, that, that I thought was really interesting. I was like, oh my god, Elvis could have played the, the guardian angel in Grease. That would have been a really, really cool thing to see. And you know what? Who knows what would have happened? Um, but that's that's the casting close calls uh, for Greece. When we come back, uh, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to get to the ratings. We're going to rate Greece 1 through 10 on its singing, dancing, acting, design, all that fun stuff. And we're going to find out what exactly is dated and what exactly is timeless uh, when it comes to Greece. So all that when we come back right here on the Movie Musical Shakedown. Hey, I got a surprise for you. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Sandy! Teddy? What are you, what are you doing here? I, I, I thought you were going back to Australia. We had a change of plans. I can't... <laughs> well, that's cool, baby. I mean, you know how it is. Rocking and rolling and whatnot. Danny? <laughs> that's my name. Don't wear it out. What's the matter with you? What's the matter with me, baby? What's the matter with you? <laughs> what happened to the Danny Zuko I met at the beach? Well, I do not know. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe there's two of us, right? Why, why, why don't you take out a missing persons ad or, or, or try the yellow pages? I don't know. 
I, I just can't. I can't take that scene. It's very uncomfortable to watch because, first of all, I mean, Sandy kind of flips at it in an instant. I mean, as soon as Danny says like one line that doesn't appear to be himself, she's like, "Who are you? I don't even know who you are anymore." Um, and of course, Danny's just saying just the dumbest things ever. Like, why don't you take out a missing persons ad? Oh boy. Uh, but interesting a note about that scene, which we'll talk about a little bit later, is my theory on Rizzo's motives right there. And I, I, this is a theory that I don't think is um, rare uh, or that original, because I've a couple other people have said that they thought the same thing. But we'll we'll come back to that in a little bit. Anyway, let's continue on. Let's get back into it. So as I mentioned before, I think the four main components for a successful, good uh, movie musical is you have to have strong singing, dancing, acting, and design. Um, so what we're going to do now is we're going to kind of go through all four categories, and we're going to give, at least I should say, I, should, I don't know why I keep saying we because I'm by myself today, but I'm going to give my, t- my rating between 1 and 10 on each of these different categories. And obviously in the future when we have a co-host, they're going to give their ratings, and we're going to have some nice discussion between it. Um, but let's start with the singing. Obviously. You know what? I think this this musical, this movie musical, has strong singing in it. I mean, you've got Olivia Newton-John. Let's be honest, Travolta can certainly sing. Stockard Channing can certainly carry a tune uh, as well. Um, We don't hear Lorenzo Lamas sing in this movie, which is unfortunate. Um, So I'm not going to include him. Uh, (laughs) But... And obviously Frankie Avalon. You've got some good, strong numbers. And even what's nice about what they did in Greece was the people that weren't really singers, but more characters, uh, like the Frenchies, the Kanickies, um, you know, other T-Birds and, and Pink Ladies, um, are given kind of specific lines in songs, and they do them pretty well. Like nobody really kind of, you know, you know like Sonny's lines – in summer nights, and and the same thing with jams. They don't really throw off the song, and they're not given too much that they could potentially you know ruin the song, so to speak. So you know what? I'm going to give the singing for Greece a strong seven. I think it's a strong seven. I'm not going to you know go. Over, I think I think ten. Um, it's definitely not a ten. You know, a nine, eight, but I think a seven is a good good number for for the singing. So that's where I'm going to go with that. Um, dancing. You know what? Here's the thing. Um, the dancing's okay. It's not incredible, but it's not terrible either. But let's be honest. I mean, it's not like over-the-top amazing dances dancing. I mean, you've got really good dancers. I mean, Travolta can obviously move, and you've got some strong background dancers as well. But really, other than, I would say, the actual dance contest sequences, there really isn't a lot of strong choreography, which is kind of, you know... I would say the one really big factor that's missing from um, this movie. and But interestingly enough, the choreographer for this film was Patricia Birch, who has done some pretty iconic choreography um, in film. Not only did she obviously uh, do the choreography for Grease, but interestingly enough, she also did the choreography for Grease 2. She was a choreographer for Saturday Night Live from 1979 to 1986. And she also did the famous piano key dance from the Tom Hanks film Big. So there you go. She did that number. Um, and then she also did the last finale number uh, trio of dancing in the first Wives Club with Goldie Hawn and Diane Keaton and Bette Midler. So there you go. So she actually has some pretty um, 
iconic dances there, which I did not know. So there you go. Pretty cool. Anyway, <clears throat> so I don't, I'm not going to say that the dancing was, was amazing, uh, but I'm also not going to say that it was terrible either. So I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a six. I think I'm going to, I think a six is a strong, strong, uh, honest number for the dancing increase. How about acting wise? I think this is a strong point in the film. I'm not going to lie. I think the acting in this is actually very, very strong. You actually, with the exception of that scene that we just kind of heard snippets from before, Travolta actually turns in a pretty good performance. So does Lavin Newton-John, especially for someone who's never been really in a movie before. She does great. Um, obviously, Stockard Channing, I think, is the best actress in the film. Um, there are nuances in her performance that kind of show signs that She's going to be something big someday, and she is. I mean, she has gone on to become a very, very accomplished stage and, and film and TV actress, uh, and for good reason, and, and you definitely see signs of that here. So I think overall, the acting is actually pretty strong in this film. I'm going to give it an 8. There you go. And then finally, design another huge uh, win for this movie. The movie was made in 1978. Like I said, it takes place... 20 years before that, 1958, 1959. Um, and honestly, it looks great. Uh, you know, from, from the clothes, from the um, set dressing to the cars, uh, everything, I'm going to give it an 8 as well. Um, so strong strong film all around. Strong strong ratings uh, up and down. Loves a uh, number that we needed and numbers that we could do without. Not too much here because the, the, a lot of the numbers... Um, that were in the original musical that were not in the film are heard in the film. They're heard in the background during the dance. They're heard on the radio in the sock hops, things like that. So they are, even though they're not fully fledged production numbers, you do hear them. Um, so if you're a fan of the original show, um, you will hear like Freddie, my love, for instance, um, is in the movie. Um, it's just heard in the background and things like that. So we didn't really, you know, there wasn't much missing, I should say. Numbers that we could do without? Probably, I mean, I guess maybe the first one. Love is a, a many splendid thing. You know, during the beach scenes. Um, I don't think you really needed a... I mean, you probably needed music there, but I don't know if you needed that song. Uh, I mean, the song kind of felt a little out of place and maybe a little overdramatic and you weren't really sure what kind of movie you were watching. And then, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed this, it's a hard edit from the beach to the opening number of Greece. I mean, it, it flips on a dime. There's no fade out or fade in. It's like, you know, Danny says like, oh, you know, it'll be okay. And then boom, Greece. And it's a weird edit. So anyway, watch that. You'll, you'll probably agree with me. But like I said, not too much is missing. Well, I shouldn't say that. Nothing is missing from this film, but I guess if I had to pick one, well, I'd probably love as many splendid things. All right, here we go. What's timeless and what's dated? All right. I want to say, here's what's timeless about Greece. Old high school buildings. You know, I work in higher education. I've seen hundreds of high schools from all over the country. Some of them are brand spanking new, and others look like they haven't been touched since the 1940s and 50s. My hometown, Hamden, Connecticut, has one of those types of schools. Even though the back is all brand new, the front facade looks like it was when my dad went to that school in the 1960s. So um, there is something that is timeless about that. I think every community in this country almost has um, 
a Rydell type of school. So seeing those old high school buildings, yeah, a lot of people could probably call them dated in a way, but I think it's kind of timeless. I don't know. I like it. Um, morning announcements in homeroom. That's also timeless. Everybody who went to a public school, high school probably had morning announcements over a PA system, maybe given by the principal, maybe given by other students. But, you know, again, I'm in high schools a lot, and very seldomly do I not hear morning announcements um, during homeroom periods and things like that. Um, something else that I found that was really timeless about this movie, old grizzled coaches, where the game has clearly passed them by, but they are treasures um, at their particular schools. So they will be there till the day that they decide not to be. Um, of course, I'm referring to Coach Calhoun. Um, and uh, again, my high school had one of those guys that he was like the football coach for like 30 plus years. He had some glory days in the past, but nothing really, you know, while I was there and, and nothing really after that or right before it either. So, you know, it was just one of those, but you couldn't get rid of the guy because he was just a treasure at that school uh, and an institution, so to speak. So that definitely, I found that to be timeless, you know, and I think a lot of schools probably have those types of guys um, out there as well. Um, something else I found timeless, having a terrible, trashy, awful first car. I think a lot of us out there, you know, our first cars as teenagers were not obviously luxury vehicles or anything that would be considered like luxurious or amazing. Um, maybe if, maybe it did, I don't know. Um, but certainly not a lot of people. I mean, a lot of my friends had, you know, cars, you know, from the 1980s and this was like the late nineties by the time I was in high school. So, um, seeing, you know, teenagers taking pride in cars that needed a lot of work, um, that were not in great conditions and things like that, that has a timeless feel to it. I think that there will always be teenagers out there who their first car is either a hand-me-down or, um, a decades, you know, old car that is on its last leg and things like that. But that was, that was something that was really timeless, uh, to me as well. What's dated? Oh gosh. <laughs> uh, what's not dated about this movie when it comes to some of the dialogue and obviously, Obviously, how women are talked about in this film is just, yeah, through a 2018 lens, it's not good. Some of the lyrics in this uh, movie are also um, not good in, in a 2018 lens. And you know what? I, I'm going to say, it, even though I wasn't born yet, probably wasn't great in the 1978 lens either. Um, so, obviously, when this got remade and Fox did their live um, broadcast of this, a lot of it was changed. Uh, to kind of fit the 2018 lens, so to speak. Uh, but yeah, that that definitely is dated. And lying about your sexual conquests and that stuff, yeah, it's just yeah, not good for 2018. So that was dated. Also dated, bullying the stereotypical high school nerd. Uh, thankfully, we've you know as a you know culture have become much more. Um, including and 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 uh, open-minded and things like that so the bullying that you see in this movie definitely just doesn't look good again through a 2018 lens either um <clears throat> also interesting note lack of diversity in rydell high i i started kind of doing a tally uh as i watched as watching this movie about people of color that i saw in this movie um and i found two definitive people of color. Um, and they were two Asian gymnasts during that scene where Danny, uh, is trying out for various sports teams and things like that. There's an Asian guy in the pommel horse and there's an Asian guy waiting in line 
to do the ring. So apparently there was not a lot of diversity uh, in this movie. That could be a 1978 Hollywood thing. Um, the reason for that. Um, also, I mean, if if one would say, well, what you know, if this movie takes place in 1958, 1959, you know, how diverse were schools like Rydell, even if it's a fictional school? Uh, so therefore, you may you know compare it to a, a high school in in California. Well, here's the the thing, you know, Board versus Brown, board, excuse me, Brown versus Board of Education. That was 1954. That decision was handed down in 1954. So this is takes place after that. So schools would have to be integrated by that point. And then secondly, um, California had actually started integrating their schools nine years before. Brown versus Board of Education. So by 1945, you started to see integration in, in public schools in California. So again, the fact that there's like hardly any racial representation in this movie whatsoever, with the exception of two Asians on the gym team, um, also does, comes off a little dated uh, as well. And then the final one that I thought was dated, again, I think you could probably do dozens of things in this movie that are dated, but I think one big thing is is the group makeout spots. Uh, you know, there's that scene where it's a panning shot of all these cars and, and you know teenagers making out, um, and then you settle on um, on Kaniki and Rizzo. Uh, that obviously I don't think happens anymore. I don't think anybody's in droves or driving up to peaks and you know over, you know cliffs overlooking valleys and things like that uh and making out with you know their respective others um and if they are well then hey good for them i just you know to me i didn't do that when i was a teenager and this was you know the 90s so um yeah i don't think that happens anymore either. the group makeout spots not so much um so we're gonna take another break real quick and when we come back we're gonna hand out some awards we're gonna do the barber award we're gonna do the russell crowe award uh and also does Greece get remade? Well, the answer might be obvious, but we'll talk about that a little bit later uh, in more in-depth um, as well, right after this break. And uh, yeah, we'll come back in just a second. Movie Musical Shakedown. Okay, girls. Let's go get them. I love that quote. I love that quote. Um, <laughs> we're gonna rule the school. All right, let's get into some words. Um, let's let's hand it out because we're this is getting long. I mean, I've been talking for almost forty-five minutes now. Let's get this going. Um, the Barbara Award, obviously named after Barbara Streisand, for the best singer in the movie. I think the choice is obvious. I'm giving it to Olivia Newton-John. I mean, the woman is a professional, you know, pop country superstar at the time, knows how to carry a tune, and not for nothing, but also in each song that she sings, um, just absolutely crushes it. And here's actually a cool factoid I did not know, um, that the song uh, Hopelessly Devoted to You obviously is not in the original show, but this was actually added post-production of the actual film. So they actually filmed principal shooting without the song. And then producers felt that, you know what? Sandy doesn't really have a ballad 
in this entire musical, uh, this entire movie. So we need to give her something. Um, so after principal photography was shot, they went back in, went on a soundstage, um, and shot hopelessly devoted to you. Um, and interestingly enough, that along with the opening number Grease were nominated for best original song, um, at the Oscars that year. So there, there you go. So <laughs> had no idea about that, which I thought was pretty cool. I'm sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. Hopelessly devoted to you was the only one nominated for a Academy award for best original song. Um, Greece and the, you're the one that I want were nominated for best original song for the golden globes, uh, that year. So got that, got that a little wrong there. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so yeah, I, I'm going to give the award obviously for best, best singing the Barbara award to Olivia Newton-John. Who gets the Russell Crowe Award? Worst singer. You know, with this movie, there really isn't a worst singer. There's just like a least not great singer. Like, you know, and it's tough when you're going up against, you know, people like Olivia Newton-John, for instance, and Frankie Avalon, who this is what they did for a living. Um, so the choice really was between Travolta and Stockard Channing. And unfortunately, I'm going to give this one to Stockard Channing. But again, not really fair because I don't think she did a terrible job. She actually, I think, has a really lovely voice. Just obviously, if you're going to do a power ranking, so to speak, of voices in this movie, she's probably at the bottom in terms of people that are actually given substantial singing uh, to do in this film. So unfortunately, Stockard Channing gets the inaugural Russell Crowe Award. Uh, the Bumlet Award. Now, this could have gone to a lot of people because this is a pretty gigantic supporting cast, but you know what? I got two choices for you. And I'm going to pick one, but I wanted, to, I wanted you to hear what my, my, my thought process was. The first nominee I had in mind was Patty Simcox because the way that um, Susan Buckner plays that role, you know, everybody went to high school with a Patty Simcox. I went to high school with a Patty Simcox. Um, there, every time I see her on screen, I get the same type of like skin crawling, stomach turning feeling I got when I encountered this t particular person when I went to school with them in high school. So it's a very real performance to me, very authentic on that. End. And, and Patty Simcox gets shit on throughout this entire movie. I mean, really, um, she just gets hammered left and right by people in this movie, whether it's, you know, um, being picked on by Rizzo, whether it's having her skirt pulled up on national television. And I mean, it's bad when you really look at it. It's like, oh, they do not treat Patty Simcox well at all. And, and actually, interestingly enough, Didi Khan said in an interview that they were not nice to the Susan Buckner who played that role during the filming either. They kind of treat her as an outcast, which is probably why that performance um, was so authentic in terms of how people interacted with her in that movie. So it's kind of sad. But anyway, she was my first nominee. The second nominee I was going to give it to was uh, the character of Leo. Now, if you don't know who Leo is, he is the head leader of the rival gang, the Scorpions, played by actor Dennis Stewart. And I have to tell you, every time I see this guy on film, I'm like, man... He is the perfect person for that role. I mean, you look at his face, you look at the hair, you look at the car, the way he's, you know, he's got the toothpick in his mouth and cigarette at one point. I'm like, man, this guy is just perfect for that role. What a badass. And then I found out that he's actually a trained classical dancer. Uh, 
yeah, Dennis Stewart was actually a dancer. And actually, there's some really cool YouTube clips of him doing like disco dancing and like actual professional dancing. And you cannot believe it's the same guy. Um, and apparently, like Dennis Stewart was also a background dancer in some scenes. So if you look really hard, especially during like the you're the one that I want and other big group numbers, um, he is actually in there dancing. Uh, I think he has got like a different wig on or something like that. But uh, because he was just such a good dancer, they had to have him dance some of these, some of these numbers too. So credit to him, man, as an actor, like way to transform yourself to become fully believable as a badass. Like I would have been like fine with him going on to play villains in action films for years. Um, so who gets the award? Oh my God, who gets the Bummer Award? Tough choice, but I'm going to give it to Susan Buckner who plays Patty Simcox. I think Patty Simcox, just because she deserves it, you know, for all the crap that she put, you know, went through. And she just perfectly embodies that role and, and again, reminds all of us who have seen Grease we know a Patty Simcox. Let's let's be honest. So congratulations to Susan Buckner. You get the inaugural Bumlin Award. Final question for this movie. Does this get remade? Um, well, we already know the, the answer to that because it has been remade. <laughs> um, yes. So I don't know. You know, it's, it's one of those things where looking back on it, you know, it, I don't think you make this. I definitely don't think you remake this like as a theatrical release now. Um, I think the Fox thing of, you know, doing it live is fine, but I think this movie is just so um, iconic in a way and obviously popular and things like that, that you just, it, you, you, it's reached that you don't touch it phase in terms of an actual full, full blown theatrical remake release. So no, this does not get remade. And also, um, <laughs> you know, with the correctionist uh, PC times that we're living in, um, you definitely, we definitely don't want to see a remade version of uh, Grease that is all, you know, censored and, and whatnot and stuff like that. So, yeah, it, it, we definitely aren't going to get that anytime soon. So, again, does it get remade? No. Um, so, there you go. Those are all the categories, folks. And that is pretty much everything that we're talking about today um, on this podcast. Those are the categories. And that's how we're going to do things here on the Movie Musical Shakedown, we're going to be basically talking about these categories, talking about trivia, talking about casting close calls and giving out awards and things like that. So this is going to be fun. And when we start bringing on other people onto this podcast, I'm really looking forward to that. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait. I'm sure you're pretty excited. At least I hope you will be. Um, I'm not going to release um, what movies we're going to do in advance. I think it's going to always going to be a surprise. But like I said... We're going to be doing this thing every week, and I promise you, we're going to be posting thing, these things on Monday mornings from here on out. So there you go. That's my promise to you folks. Thank you so much for listening. I, I'm so glad to be able to do this for all of you. Um, we're going to be doing this throughout the year. So this is the Movie Musical Shakedown. I, of course, am your host, Chris Peterson. We will see you next week with a brand new movie. Have a great day, folks.